Doctor's Kitchen. Recipes, health, lifestyle. Women in the reproductive age produce four times as much testosterone as estrogen. Most doctors don't know that. And so testosterone is as much a female hormone as a male hormone. Welcome to the Doctor's Kitchen podcast. The show about food, lifestyle, medicine, and how to improve your health today. I'm Dr. Rupi, your host. I'm a medical doctor. I study nutrition and I'm a firm believer in the power of food and lifestyle as medicine. Join me and my expert guests where we discuss the multiple determinants of what allows you to lead your best life. Today, we have a jam-packed episode discussing what my guest describes as the epidemic of PCOS. Dr. Neetu Bajakol is a senior consultant obstetrician and gynecologist, author, and board-certified lifestyle medicine practitioner in the UK with over 35 years of clinical experience in women's health. And today, we are talking about how you can spot the signs of PCOS, why PCOS costs billions in healthcare costs annually, why women, particularly from ethnic minorities, are at worse risk. And we also discuss how three in four of those with PCOS remain undiagnosed because of how complex a condition it is. We talk about insulin resistance and the drivers behind it, estrogen dominance and whether that's a thing or not, the estrobolum, which is something that I haven't heard referred to like that in the past, and also how to avoid bloating when inching toward a more whole food, plant-based diet. We also get into a bit about Nitu's background and how on the outside, she is a smiley, happy, motivational, energetic person. But on the inside, you know, she does suffer from anxiety and it's something that really does resonate with me. And I think it, it speaks to the wider implications of comparing oneself on social media where you just show each other the highlights of your day rather than actually really how you're feeling. Uh, and I'm, I'm really delighted that we got a chance to talk into I uh, talk a bit more about Nitu's background and how she actually got into lifestyle medicine. So that's towards the end. And as you can tell, this episode is going to be absolutely packed with information, but you can also check out Nitu's book, Living PCOS Free, that she co-authored with her daughter and nutritionist, Rohini Bajikol. Remember, you can watch this podcast on YouTube and you can download the Doctor's Kitchen app for free wherever you get your apps on the App Store. Android users, we are working on Android. You can join the waitlist on the Eat, Listen, Read newsletter. Where we've got an Android waitlist now. And as soon as we get an Android-ready version, you'll be the first to know about it. And do check out the Seasonal Sundays newsletter every week. We are featuring a seasonal ingredient, diving into the nutrition science, diving into the history of it, and how you can use it in your weekly diet. On to the podcast. Before we get started, here is a quick word from the people who make this podcast possible. I want to dive right into this. At the start of your book, you describe uh, PCOS as, a, as an epidemic. And I was actually quite shocked to see that in an economic meta-analysis in, in 2021, PCOS accounts for eight billion dollars in healthcare costs annually in the US alone. Why 
why does it cost this much? And, and, and how come I wasn't aware of this? That's a great question, Rupi. Actually, most people aren't aware of this, including doctors and health professionals. Uh, and that's because um, three quarters of people with PCOS never get a diagnosis, first of all. Uh, but when they do, the effects, the short term, medium term and longer term effects cost the, the economy because half the uh, women with polycystic ovary syndrome by the age of 40 will have type 2 diabetes if they're carrying excess weight. Um, gestational diabetes is a real problem. That is pregnancy in diabetes, uh, pregnancy, uh, diabetes in pregnancy, uh, as well as uh, later on, you know, womb cancer, uh, di- type 2 diabetes, um, increased risk of heart disease, all these things add up. So although they may not have had a diagnosis of polycystic ovary syndrome, the the results of having the condition end up costing the economy. So we're not doing prevention. We are sort of firefighting afterwards rather than, you know, moving in much earlier. One in 10 women are actually affected by the condition, polycystic ovary syndrome. But in certain subgroups, the Asian population that is so sadly not been researched properly at all. Uh, Those who are from other uh, ethnic minorities groups, Hispanics, uh, African-Americans, they all have a higher incidence of polycystic ovary syndrome. Those who are struggling to conceive, those who, um, you know, are carrying excess weight, the incidence can be as high as one in four. That is not just an epidemic. I would say it's a pandemic, but nobody is talking about it. And that's why one of the reasons we wrote the book, Uh, you know, so we wanted to reach people who either didn't know they had the condition or if they did, they had nobody had joined the dots and they were being either dismissed by their health professionals to come back. I have seen so many patients being told, come back when you want to get pregnant, uh, when they have missing periods or irregular periods. And so these are the things that I, we felt, um, you know, I wrote it with my daughter because I actually started writing a general book. Um, I had been wanting to write a book for years and never got around to it with my busy uh, lifestyle and my job and career and managing a family. And when I finally got down to writing it, I started writing a general book. Um, and Rohini, my daughter, who's a co-author, said, Mom, why are you writing a book that has got two pages on PCOS, two pages on endometriosis, another few pages on menopause when you are, you have 35 years of experience and you are special, specialized in all these areas? And she herself has PCOS, and it took a long time to diagnose, despite being the do- daughter of a uh, OBGYN. And so we wanted to write the book that she wished everybody else could have, because she obviously had me to help her. So that's how the book came about. Yeah, yeah. It, it's amazing. I, I met your daughter um, uh, briefly at a Romy Gill's um, book launch a, a couple of months, um, maybe it was a year ago now, the time flies post-pandemic. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And she's so lovely. <laughs> and you can tell it really comes across in how she's shared her story so bravely in the, in, in the book. And we'll get to, to your sort of your own story as well. Um, but uh, yeah, no, I, I think it's a it's a lovely combination of the mother daughter and having that book that she wished that she had. Let let's dive into some of the um, the elements that are driving this disorder because the the prevalence with uh, the increase in prevalence, particularly amongst ethnic minorities, I think 
uh, is seen across lots of different conditions that we see, some of which are related to PCOS. What's driving this condition? Uh, and and I, I'm assuming it's going to be a genetic component as well, which is explaining this. But what, it, give us a sort of a, a summary, a sort of uh, a bird's eye picture of, of what we know about what is driving PCOS. I think I'll start off, Rupi, just by explaining what the condition is, because there may be listeners who may not actually know what uh, PCOS is, which is polycystic ovary syndrome. Um, It's the most common hormonal condition to affect women worldwide. And when I use the word women, I do want to stress that it's anybody who has female reproductive organs or has been assigned female at birth, because that is important. However, you may choose to identify later. And it affects, as I said, one in 10 women officially, but we think in certain subgroups is one in four. So it's a, the most common endocrine condition. And I want your listeners to think of it as a cousin of type 2 diabetes. And so once you understand that it's a complex condition, it's a genetically driven condition. So you will have family members often, if you take a good enough history of a mother or a sister, because that increases your risk. Um, And epigenetics and genetics comes in because it also works on the way the insulin receptor is, is modulated and things like that. But interestingly, there was a wonderful study of 172,000 men, I think, in um, uh, an Oxford study, which said that men also show the characteristics of polycystic ovary syndrome. Now, that is something that is really interesting. And what do we mean by that? So PCOS is a hormonal condition, but it doesn't actually... Is, uh, the ovaries are not diseased. It affects the function of the ovaries. So it is an endocrine condition. It is managed a lot by gynecologists, but really it's an endocrinologist who should be managing this condition. And men have symptoms like metabolic syndrome. They have raised triglycerides, increased waist size. They have uh, early frontal um, loss of hair or frontal balding, as we say, type 2 diabetes, increased risk of heart disease. So if you're a man listening and you have a a mother or a sister with PCOS, you need to also take that extra care because you also may have those symptoms of PCOS because PCOS is mistakenly named polycystic ovary syndrome. There are no cysts in the ovaries. What those are are immature egg follicles that you're born with and every month one of them is supposed to race to the top and, you know, release its egg, which is called ovulation. And that gets disordered because of the signals coming from the brain and from insulin resistance, which is tends to be the main driver. So your question was, what is actually driving this condition? About three quarters of people with PCOS have a background of insulin resistance. Eight out of 10 women with PCOS actually carry excess weight, but 20% don't. And even some of them will have insulin resistance. And insulin resistance for your listeners is basically a condition, a situation where your cells in all your body, whether it's your muscle, whether it is uh, everywhere, every single cell in your body becomes resistant to the action of insulin. So the insulin is a hormone. Hormones are chemical messengers. They are basically released in a certain organ. Say, for example, the pituitary gland in the brain releases hormones like FSH and LH or the pancreas release insulin and they exert their action in a distant organ. That's what a hormone is. It's a chemical messenger. So when 
your body uh, or the cell is clogged either, for example, with fat or the insulin receptor uh, gene is uh, causing a defect in the receptor, which is where the insulin hormone will attach itself. What happens is the cell says, no, no, I don't want you to come in and move the glucose in. So what happens is the body then sends a message to the pancreas saying, produce more insulin, not actually getting the message. So the insulin levels rise. And as insulin levels rise, what happens is there is another hormone called insulin-like growth factor which directly stimulates the ovaries to produce more androgens testosterone is what you would have heard of and so that then results in many of the signs and symptoms of PCOS so insulin resistance when we treat it however and we'll come to that we think that is one of the main drivers but it's not the only driver but it has to be in the background of genetics so you know, I want people to realize that it is a genetic condition that is hugely influenced by the environment, by the lifestyle. And it's not just what you eat. or It's also, you know, the pollutants in the uh, uh, atmosphere, in, in what you are eating from. All these things are equally important. Otherwise, I find people tend to blame themselves. You know, oh, it's a lifestyle condition. So it must be that I have done something wrong. And that is a big problem because if you don't start talking to yourself with compassion, you're going to go down this rabbit hole of it's my fault. And, you know, historically, women have always been in that, made to be smaller than themselves, <laughs> you know, immigrant women, especially uh, in this country. So, and women all over. So I, I just think it's important to understand not to spend time blaming yourself. Speak to yourself as if you would to a loved one. So I, I want people to understand that lifestyle doesn't mean it's only what you are actually doing. Yes, there are things that you can do. Mm. I, I want to go back uh, slightly, actually, to the PCOS, because uh, I think that's going to be pretty um, surprising for a lot of people that there aren't cysts in the ovary, right? And that this is actually a hormonal-driven uh, issue. This is a, an endocrine problem that is commonly managed by uh, OBGYN, as, as you just mentioned. What, how did we get to the, the situation where we describe it in the, in the description of the, of the condition as polycystic ovary syndrome? What, how do we get to this point? And, and, what, and maybe we should be renaming it? I'm, I'm not too sure about your thoughts on that. So there was a big move to re, uh, rename it as reproductive metabolic syndrome, but it's only just started getting airtime PCOS. So I think it was then decided, leave the name alone. And the name really comes from, Rupi, when you look at one of the criteria for diagnosing PCOS. So in an adult woman, you need to have two out of the three criterion to be uh, met if you're going to diagnose somebody with polycystic ovary syndrome. PCOS is a diagnosis of exclusion, which means that when a patient comes to see me, I have to be very careful giving before I give them a diagnosis of PCOS because there are other conditions that can mimic it. Uh, and so you have to rule out things like ovarian tumors, adrenal tumors. You have to rule out hypothalamic amenorrhea, especially in a lean PCOS person, because it may be from over-exercising or from, uh, you know, a eating disorder or, and other uh, conditions. So it's really important, Cushing uh, syndrome or non-congenital uh, um, adrenal hyperplasia. There are many, many conditions. So a really a good endocrinologist and a good OBGYN will not just label somebody because misdiagnosis can also be harmful. You don't want to overdiagnose the condition. And so 
um, what happens is you need to fulfill these three criteria. And what are these three criteria? The first one is one that most people would have heard of is missing periods or irregular periods. Now, a normal period should be between 24 and 35 days. Your period should be coming 24, 25, 26 days, 27 days, or 30, 31, 35. It shouldn't swing wildly. It, you shouldn't be missing periods. And if you're missing periods, especially for more than three months, or your cycles are 40 days, 45 days, that's not normal. That's not the normal signal that is going through your body. So that is known as an ovulation. Your ovary is not releasing the egg every month. And so that is resulting in these delayed periods of missing periods. That's the first criteria. That's a clinical criteria. I just need to ask the patient, tell me your menstrual cycle. And every woman should be tracking her menstrual cycle from the time she starts her periods till the time she finishes then the second criteria so the first one is not releasing the egg and period issues the second one is signs of androgen excess which basically means that you would have heard and this is something that really saddens me a lot uh, because people use the word testosterone as a male hormone women in the reproductive age produce four times as much testosterone as estrogen. Most doctors don't know that. And so testosterone is as much a female hormone as a male hormone. And it, it depends upon your age, your gender, your stage of life that the testosterone levels fluctuate. But so the most famous of all the androgens is testosterone. There are others. And what happens is there can be signs of androgen excess, which is a second criteria. And how would you notice it clinically? Uh, women may notice that they have adult acne, acne on their chin, back knee on their chest. They may have hair where they don't want it on their chin, on their chest. They may notice scalp hair uh, loss. So these are the critical signs. Uh, and so you can have both these, uh, the first criteria of missed periods and acne, that may be enough to give you a diagnosis of PCOS, but you have to complete the whole circle. So you would do certain lab tests, which will look at testosterone levels, the amount of free testosterone that is going around, that is not attached to a protein by the liver. So there are certain lab tests that we also do that could be part of the second criterion. And then the third one is where the name came from. It's an ultrasound. Now, a pelvic ultrasound, and you should have a vaginal ultrasound only if you've never been, uh, never had penetrative intercourse. It should never be done in somebody who's never had uh, vaginal intercourse uh, or, you know, uh, and so what is important to know about the ultrasound, you can do it abdominally as well in young girls. Uh, you want to look at the ovaries and there are, there's a particular pattern. There are these little empty immature egg follicles that haven't matured arranged in a pearl necklace or a rosary appearance. And so they appear like these little fluid filled cysts, but they're really empty immature egg uh, follicles. And so that is a name where polycystic ovary came from. And also the volume is increased. Now, we don't use ultrasound or polycystic ovaries in teenagers. So you're not allowed to use ultrasound as one of the criteria. And you have to use the first two. Why? Because adolescents actually have multicystic ovaries naturally and normally. And so you might get confused. So that's where the misnomer of polycystic ovary came from. Similar thing is people often say, I have pain with PCOS. Pain is not really a feature of those cysts. They don't grow to any size. They're not big uh, ovarian cysts or things like that. So if you are having pain and you're listening to this and you've been diagnosed with PCOS, that is not normal. Painful periods is not normal with PCOS. What it 
you should look out for is do you have a coexisting condition? Do you have endometriosis or fibroids and uh, adenomyosis and pelvic infections and things like that? People often just will put one label and then you know, you're suffering for a long time. You may have pelvic floor dysfunction, you know, and that's what's causing the problems, body image issues, so many conditions, situations. And we talk about all this in the book because while the book is a deep dive, people can just pick up and read different chapters that they want to simply because, you know, you want to learn more about the condition, the bits that affect you. So that's what we did. We tried to break up the book into different bits with case studies. Yeah, that, that's going to be exceptionally important, I think, for people who are trying to join the dots, as you described earlier, that Rohini was doing. Ken, just on the point around pain um, and painful periods, because I think that is a very common uh, uh, misinterpretation of what PCOS is, even amongst healthcare professionals. I think they would will the painful periods away with a, a, a total diagnosis of PCOS. Do we have a sense of the coexistence of PCOS with other painful uh um uh, other other conditions that lead to painful periods yeah there have been a couple of studies to show that there is a link these are all hormonal health conditions they're all estrogen driven so you can mm. imagine that there is the problem rupee is research is really crestfully <laughs> very inadequate in women's research considering we have a whole OBGYN speciality uh, and so but in my own uh, clinic experience I do find more and more it really depends on how much time you spend with the patient uh, how much time you spend listening to the story uh, that you can actually pick up and so uh, I do find that there is uh, increasing certainly as I am becoming more aware uh, over the last decade or so I've been picking up more women with coexisting conditions. And so it is, you know, I hope somebody will do some more research in this area. But certainly, if you are having painful periods, please don't just assume it's PCOS. Uh, but instead, you know, look out for other things. Ask the questions. You know, people, uh, as a health professional, as a doctor, it's our duty to answer your questions. And if you're not able to, then refer on to somebody who does know because this joining of dots, um, hopefully when we talk about symptoms, I'll explain why it is so difficult to join the dots, which is why I want, you know, the person with PCOS in the center actually saying, you know what, this is what I think I have because none of you are seeing me. You're seeing me in these different little groups <laughs> of mm. different conditions and nobody's telling me that actually there is a, a common thread here. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And 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 on the subject of that common thread, let's talk a little bit more about insulin resistance because I think this is not only one of the potential driving forces behind PCOS, but a whole host of other conditions, right? So uh, everything from type two diabetes, dementia, cancer. There there are links with this insulin resistance phenomena. Um, you know, you mentioned a few of those different uh, drivers behind or the causes of insulin resistance. One being uh, environmental, genetic, there's also lifestyle factors, environmental toxins, sleep as well. Um, but let's talk a little bit about exercise uh, and in the context of insulin resistance. What, what, are, what are the things that we know can potentially help us improve our sensitivity to this important hormone? Exercise probably plays one of the key roles, I would say, to 
improving your cells, becoming more sensitive to the action of insulin. And it works in many ways by modulating your glucose levels, but also improving the uptake of insulin. And we know that strength training or resistance training, especially in those with PCOS and in type 2 diabetics, plays a particularly good role. So when you incorporate regular exercise and bring in strength training, ideally at least twice a week, working different groups of muscles, we know that the cells become more sensitive to the action of insulin very quickly, actually. Uh, similarly, you know, um, when you look at uh, having had a meal, if you actually get up and even walk for 10 minutes, that improves insulin sensitivity. So very simple things that we often have this habit of having a meal, uh, the biggest meal at the end of the day in front of the TV, and the blood sugar levels never drop enough. So learning to eat within the circadian rhythm um, makes a very big difference for uh, those with PCOS and those who have issues with managing uh, blood sugars. But actually, who doesn't uh, in this modern age? know, with all the stresses and things. So exercise, definitely a very big tick. Um, aerobic is also very good. Uh, in uh, people with PCOS, doing high intensity interval training may not have the same benefits can, unless you're very used to it. Uh, cortisol levels can rise, can worsen inflammation. I would always say listening to your body and at different parts of your cycle and actually doing more uh, you know, energetic training in the first half if you wanted to, but more gentle training, yoga, Pilates, strength training, you know, in the second half uh, and strength training throughout really for everybody, you know, um, I'm menopausal. And I always tell uh, women in the perimenopause and menopause, bring in strength training. It's one of the things that will keep your muscles working. And as we know, one in three people will die from a hip fracture, women uh, from a hip fracture. So you want to build those muscles. And so it's for every age group. But PCOS particularly, exercise and insulin sensitivity is, and we have a whole chapter um, dedicated to that because insulin resistance is complex. It's genetic um, background, but also carrying excess weight. Uh, really uh, fuels the fat that is blocking each cell. And so when you lose a bit of weight, um, what happens is that fat moves away from the uh, the receptor site. And so it's like, imagine glue being stuck into a keyhole, which is the insulin receptor and insulin is the key. Uh, so when you remove that um, gum or glue, then it works a bit better. The key turns a bit better. So that's why, um, you know, exercise, while it's not good for losing weight, uh, it helps with improving insulin sensitivity, but losing a bit of weight also helps to improve insulin sensitivity. So body weight does matter for insulin resistance. Uh, genetics matters. Uh, also the foods we eat. So when you eat foods very high in saturated fats, they also will worsen the um, effects of this, the cell, the way it reacts to insulin. So I hope people are getting a little sense of why insulin resistance is so important in uh, polycystic ovary syndrome. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, with all uh, subjects in nutrition, it's influenced by a multitude of different factors, which makes it quite confusing for a lot of people. Um, you, you mentioned age there, and I think you know when when you uh, naturally age, you you lose things like lean muscle mass. Uh, you naturally lose your uh, diversity of your microbes, and so uh, a confluence of all these different things, a reduction in your immune system, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, leads to more inflammation, more insulin resistance, and the great preponderance of all these different things that we know it's related to. So it's it's a, a really important sort of 
just a broad strokes idea to understand uh, all these different influences whilst we dive into these specific uh, subjects. So exercise, super important. Genetics, something you can't really change, but something that you can definitely manage with or better manage with, with better knowledge. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the gut microbiome before we go into a sort of more holistic diet picture, because there is emerging research around the gut microbiome, which is this population of microbes that live in and around our body, largely in our large intestine. And these microorganisms play uh, a role in insulin resistance and disruptions to this gut microbiome can uh, lead to overgrowth of certain bacteria that are less favorable, which can cause inflammation and, and alter the way our, our body uses uh, glucose. Um, I wonder if you could talk a bit about the, the microbiota in that sense. Definitely. The gut microbiome is critical in hormonal health conditions. We know that in polycystic ovary syndrome, in endometriosis, if you look at uh, samples of uh, the gut bacteria, the vaginal bacteria, as well as bacteria from the peritoneal cavity, we know that there is a higher incidence of the ones that do not really bring health, you know, uh, groups like Shigella and things like that, Salmonella. So, we know that there is disordered microbiome in um, PCOS, but we also know that there is a gut microbiome called the estrobilome. Uh, I don't know if you're aware of it. it. These are gut bacteria that specifically synthesize and metabolize estrogen uh, that comes into the gut, which is normally meant uh, to be um, absorbed and uh, meant to be digested and excreted out so you don't have excess estrogen. We know excess estrogen from our body fat, from some of our foods can actually worsen the situation for us by increasing our risks of breast cancer and other estrogen fueled conditions like PCOS, fibroids and endometriosis. So actually nurturing the gut microbiome by avoiding advanced glycation end products such as, you know, fried foods and fatty foods and really increasing the amount of fiber in one's foods, which, you know, fiber is found only in plants. So trying to eat a, a a wide diversity of foods so rather than just sticking to a narrow um, uh, number of foods because most people tend to eat uh, you know the same six or seven dinners <laughs> you know so uh, it's it's really thinking about what can I put on my plate I absolutely dislike um, what I should not eat. I don't like the what, what I should not eat. What I want to know is what I should eat. What should I put on my plate? And so I encourage all my patients to put more color on their plate. And so I see patients every single day, Rupee, where teenagers will tell me they hate fruit uh, or they hate vegetables or older women will say we are scared of uh, fruit because we've heard fruit contains sugar. Uh, and so I have to spend a lot of time dispelling those myths, but also meeting the patient where they are at. So if a teenager tells me she hates vegetables, I ask her, okay, do you like cucumbers? Oh, I love cucumbers. Okay. So why don't we have a plate uh, with cut up cucumber after school every day? And she says, oh, I can do that. And well, I like peas too. Okay. So the following week you add some peas and then you add some carrots and, and then slowly you start building up without them feeling overwhelmed telling somebody to have 10 to 13 portions of fruit and veg. 10 to 13 portions of fruits and veg is actually not a big deal. It's about four or five fruits and a big salad. But telling somebody who doesn't allow a single piece of fruit to pass through their um, lips because they're on some fancy diet, you explain to them, do you like oranges? Oh, I like satsumas. Okay, do you mind having a couple of satsumas? We know they reduce the risk of endometriosis. Uh, so, 
Oh, I can do that. Okay. So do you think you could add a bunch of grapes to it? Oh, I love grapes. I thought they're so sugary. And so suddenly they're starting to eat some berries and some mangoes and some grapes. And you've got them on the path and they're challenging themselves and thinking, I need to put color on my plate. That's what Dr. Bajakal has said. So it's just understanding that once you understand that, I think it becomes easier and not so overwhelming, not so, so judgmental on yourself, you know, that I've been a bad person. I ate a piece of cake. So what? Mm, uh, you mm, know, yeah. we're allowed treats. Everybody's allowed a treat. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and I, I love that sort of holistic perspective you take of of eating. It's not just one way. It's, you know, meeting pers- people where they're at. And I think, you know, that speaks to your uh, decades of, of experience in, uh, in clinical practice and seeing so many people uh, because you can't brute force this. And I think social media in particular sort of paints a very stark picture of what your diet should and should not look like. And in reality, it's flux, right? You know, I, I'm gonna, I'm going out tonight to a Thai restaurant. I know there is something on the menu uh, in the dessert section that I absolutely love. It's this like mango parfait thing. And uh, it's, it's full of sugar. It's got, it's got all that, not from the mango, but from all the other stuff they put on it. But I'm going to be eating that. And I, I'm, I'm, I'm doing that in the full knowledge of the impact on my insulin resistance. But over time, it's the consistency of one's diet that really has the, the impact it's on moving It's not one meal, Rupi. Yeah. And it's not one or the other. Yeah. It's not one or the other. You know, people often think it has to be just one way. It doesn't have to be. Just like Western medicine can uh, go side by side of, with lifestyle medicine. Similarly, a treat is a treat. You know, you're allowed to have that treat. Uh, and, and that's why they're called treats. They're not meant to be everyday foods. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you totally. know, I think it's important to, to uh, understand that. Yeah. Uh, uh, so uh, just sticking with the subject of um, insulin resistance at the moment, you mentioned environmental toxins, I think is getting a little bit more airtime now, particularly as we know a lot more about POPs, persistent organic pollutants and bisphol, bisphenol A. I remember thinking and talking about bis, uh, BPA a few years ago, and I was sort of ridiculed by some of my colleagues about the impact on obesity or insulin resistance. And I think now we, we've got a lot more evidence to suggest that it is problematic and, and hence the banning of it. Um, but I, I wonder if you can talk a little bit about, about how these environmental pollutants uh, cause or are related to insulin resistance and what we can do to mitigate that. Yeah, I, I didn't finish that fourth reason, you know, the insulin resistance with genetics, um, you know, body weight and with the foods that we eat. The fourth um, background uh, reason we think insulin resistance is increasing is are these endocrine disruptors. Uh, Endocrine disruptors are hormonal disruptors. They can actually go and not mimic or displace uh, normal hormones, whether it's thyroid, whether it is your estrogen, whether it's your testosterone levels, so effects on uh, egg quality, sperm quality, and things like that. And we talk about it in PCOS. We know that uh, when you are exposed to BPAs and POPs and, uh, you know, if you think about most of the menstrual products, Rupee, most of them will have at least 200 chemicals in them, which is why I'm a big advocate, of not just from you know choosing environmentally friendly, skin sensitive, less pollutant um, driven, because you're 
putting these tampons and pads into very close contact, into very sensitive uh, areas. And so one can start with those areas and look, how can you use more natural products? How can you change the laundry detergent that you're using that is actually more uh, skin sensitive and more environmentally friendly with less harsh chemicals? We are all made of chemicals. We all have to have chemicals, but we are talking about harsh chemicals that will disrupt the hormones within our body and actually make conditions, whether it's obesity, whether it is cancer risk, whether it is PCOS, uh, you know, we don't know the full um, extent of all this. But what we do know is uh, when you heat foods in these microwavable takeaway dishes and things like that and plastics, so trying to go as plastic free, it's good for the environment, it's also good for you, it's good for your health, uh, all hormonal health, male and female hormonal health. So I really would suggest that based on the evidence that is coming through and there are studies now uh, run by quite large environmental councils and 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 uh, people who are interested in it city to see is a good uh, uh, account that i would suggest following as well because they do a lot of work uh, about these environmental poll- pollutants and uh, i think it's important from a in a simpler perspective, rather than thinking, oh my God, I have to go completely plastic free, start with simple things. Learn to store in, in glass jars or in stainless steel, go back to my Indian roots, yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, doing little things like that uh, can actually help. And that's what I have been trying to do, you know, really focusing, uh, you know, making sure that when I go to the bulk food store, I'm actually using my own um, Tupperware and things like that. When I bring vegetables and fruits in, trying to take away the plastic straight away. And, and storing them uh, either in the fridge or outside without the plastic, you know, looking at the kind of shampoos and the, and the menstrual products, simple little things, because the studies are suggesting that it does disrupt hormones, whether it's insulin, whether it's estrogen, whether it's testosterone, whether it's your thyroid hormone. So, you know, I don't want to wait. I don't want your listeners. I don't want my patients. And I don't want us to be waiting for all the evidence to come out. You know, we knew smoking was bad for us and caused lung cancer probably 50 years before a ban was brought in. So I'm not suggesting anybody waits for that. I'm not waiting to tell people don't drink. Uh, you know, it's okay to drink alcohol, uh, you know, on a regular basis and go with the guidelines currently because, I don't think there's any safe limit. The studies are clearly showing that, but, you know, the guidelines are still not caught up. So sometimes you just have to move ahead with times. Yeah, yeah, I I agree. And I I really respect that because I think particularly within medicine, it is uh, sort of frowned upon to go against uh, or have a differing opinion to the the consensus or or the the guidelines. And And I think it's important as independent practitioners to weigh up the evidence ourselves and uh, provide what we feel are safe, educated um, points of view and, and advice for, for individuals. And, and you know, um, it would be pertinent, I think, to reduce the use of these um, synthetic chemicals through packaging from an environmental point of view uh, alone. I think no one would really argue against that. Um, and I think you're right. There are there are plenty of studies that are coming out now that would uh, demonstrate um, the the advice around uh, reducing one's body burden of um, of uh, environmental pollutants. So, I've done some very simple things myself in terms of changing my cookware, changing what we put our our food in, in terms of the the types of containers. 
But at the same time, I don't allow the uh, genuine anxiety I have around uh, persistent organic pollutants and BPAs and all the rest of it to influence, you know, when I'm out at an airport and I can't get anything that's not being served in a plastic container. Like that for me is like, okay, well, I'm going to take the hit. And I also live in the middle of a busy city, uh, you know, inhaling the fumes and and all the rest of it. And I think we have to also respect how resilient our bodies are. Um, so I think that's just something to to sort of balance my my perspective on these as well. Yeah, I, I would definitely say there is always a balance. Uh, it's really important, you know, there are days when you're tired and you want to have a takeaway. It comes in a plastic um, Tupperware. Nothing wrong with that. All you need to do is empty it out into your own dishes. Simple things that one has to do, you, ha- you know. There are huge advantages of living in a city as well um, because of all the stimulation, the mental and emotional stimulations that you do get and and the wide variety of people and, uh, you know, cuisines and things that you're actually exposed to. I think, you know, the community that we live in is also as important as the uh, environment we live in. So, yes, there may be pollutants, but it's a choice that we make uh, and it should not stop us from living our full life, you know, and being really worried. What we do need to do is drive government government policies and be aware of of the policies, why they're being made and support them. I I think it can get very overwhelming if you start really, I think the stress, the emotional and mental stress of trying to lead this so-called clean life can actually be more detrimental in the long term. So I'm an absolute not fan of that. Equally, I was, as I was going to say, I'm not worried about going against the grain. I have no issues about saying what um, I need to say based on emerging science and science. I definitely don't think that it's one or the other. I get really upset when I see wellness influencers uh, disregarding or uh, degrading or running down Western medicine, because we wouldn't be sitting here without Western medicine, without our vaccines, without, you know, clean water. All these things have come through, you know, with, uh, through, you know, antibiotics, um, the, the birth control pill, you know, HRT, all these things are life changing for people. You know, pregnancy is a dangerous business. So um, it's not one or the other. It's not that you can't have the pill for polycystic ovary syndrome to manage acne or, uh, you know, excess hair, but there's also lifestyle. So it's not one or the other. People want to think that it has to be this or nothing. And it's not. And I want doctors as well as uh, the wellness influencers to know that it actually, for the person in the center, both might work. You can do everything with your lifestyle. You may have been handed a very bad genetic card. And as a result, you know, you may have to take medications for diabetes or chemotherapy uh, or anything. I'm, you know, don't knock that. Those have mm. been proven ways. There are randomized trials and, and mm. deep studies. Similarly, nutrition has been shown. So to my fellow doctors out there, you know, lifestyle and nutrition does play a huge role. And Absolutely. you can see it all over societies all over the world. Absolutely. Yeah, it's embedded in our in our culture for sure. Um, you, you mentioned just whilst we were talking about insulin resistance, there, you mentioned the Easter Balome and uh, the the population of microbes that are responsible for safely removing excess amounts of estrogen. And it, it reminded me of a, a section in your book, actually, that um, dived into this topic of estrogen dominance. So I wonder if, you know, th- this this term that's kind of banded around that 
perhaps is not, not as useful as many people would have um, uh, would, would have thought. What are your what are your thoughts on this term of Eastern dominance, and and is this how we should be describing things? The honest truth, it's it's BS. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> go for it. <laughs> There is nothing called estrogen dominance, okay? <laughs> the body is very smart. <laughs> what we are talking about is excess levels of estrogen in certain situations that actually worsen certain hormonal health conditions. There is no reason to assume that some of these supplements and things that people recommend will reduce estrogen dominance. Uh, estrogen dominance is a there's a grain of truth in it, of course, Rupi. You know, what I'm talking about are estrogen-driven conditions, breast cancer, fibroids, PCOS, uh, endometriosis. These are adenomyosis. These are all conditions that are driven by hormones. But that doesn't mean that, that your estrogen levels are dominant in that situation. What you want to do by taking progesterone, you're not going to try and reduce that estrogen dominance. So you do need to focus on what are the things, you know, what is going into your mouth? What is your uh, body weight? Is that something that you can actually work on? Is it that, you know, you have to take uh, progesterone uh, medications because you are not having periods, which means that you have uh, you know, unopposed estrogen, and that is increasing your risk of womb cancer. So you need to take progesterone and have a regular um, withdrawal bleed every three months if you're not having any periods at all and you're not on any hormonal medications. So that is what that grain of truth of the estrogen being in, you know, in uh, excess has been taken to become this really bandied term, which is why we've spent some time myth-busting with regards to estrogen dominance, because it irritates me. Every time I see that word, it irritates me because it misleads people into thinking that if they took this supplement or that supplement or did this or that, they would actually be fine. And you know, this is what happens when you have little knowledge uh, and anybody can have little knowledge. I'm not at all saying that doctors are the gatekeepers of knowledge. But when you have little information that is not backed by science, it can become a very dangerous place to be in. You know, when you say things like uh, beans are dangerous for you or, for example, that, you know, if you don't eat a 100% plant-based diet, you're going to die. No, of course, we know that there are a lot of nuances with nutrition. I choose to follow a 100% plant-based diet and, and because I know the benefits for me, for the environment, for the animals. But that doesn't mean to say that there are there is no leeway there, <laughs> you know, for people who are exploring or moving ahead or their choice. Um, you know, you don't have to be 100% in anything, <laughs> you know. That would be going back to school and not getting that 100% and maybe people's parents asking, oh, you got 98? Why did you not get 100? <laughs> yeah, I think that the, the the use of words and terminology that's banded around, I mean, even casting the, the light on ourselves with the words PCOS, uh, the, the, the abbreviation of it, you know, that it can create uh, an incorrect picture of actually what's going on. And so you're right. I think just being aware of uh, the terminology and, and actually how your body is reacting and what is driving the condition, I think is re really important. Um, talking about joining the dots, so we talked a bit about symptoms earlier on. Are there other, uh, I mean, how how was Rohini's experience? How did you join the dots for her? And how would you want more people to better understand their bodies when it comes to potentially 
approaching their general practitioner or primary care physician um, with a suggestion that this could be PCOS or another hormone-driven disorder? Yes. So it doesn't matter whether you are diagnosed ultimately with PCOS or endometriosis or hypothalamic amenorrhea. What is important, and we spent the whole first section of my book is understanding one's body. Uh, Because when there was a survey in London where you think, okay, there are a lot of younger people and they should know, one in two women did not know where their cervix was. One in four women in a survey in 2020 did not know where their vagina was. One in 10 women did not know where their reproductive organs were. So this was, and these were not like 200 women, these were 2000 women that were surveyed. So, and I find that in my own practice as well, you know, you have these lawyers and um, um, doctors even who don't realize that the menstrual cycle should be between 24 and 35 days uh, and that missing periods is not acceptable. You may have PCOS, you may have an ovarian tumor, you may have an eating uh, disorder, you may have uh, be exercising too much, you may be having a completely other medical condition. But if you're somebody who's regularly having delayed periods beyond the 35 days or you're having frequent periods under 24 days, if you are having periods coming every three months, uh, it's really important to understand that that needs to be addressed. Okay, so first of all, knowing your body, understanding the different parts of your body, that the vulva is not the same as the vagina. Throughout the book, I try and explain these differences because if you don't know your body, it becomes very difficult to advocate for yourself when you're sitting in front of the doctor's chair. I know for myself, I became menopausal at the age of 38. I was had just become a consultant and I still didn't know where to turn because I was not able to push for myself. And so if you don't have the knowledge in those 10 minutes, your mind goes blank. You can't ask the questions that you have to. So writing down all the questions, we have a whole chapter, what you should ask your dog, how to prepare for your appointment. It's so important that if you know your body, you can say, this is where it's hurting. This is what's actually happening. No, this is not what's happening. That's important for us to know. So that is the first thing. Know your body, track your menstrual cycle. There are so many free apps. And if you're worried about smartphones, write it down in an old-fashioned diary. You must know your flow. It's not your doctor who decides whether your period is heavy or not. You decide. If you are leaking, uh, if you are somebody who's passing clots, if your periods are lasting more than seven days, those things are big warning signs. So in PCOS, if you're having delayed periods or missed periods, that's one sign that you should be looking out for. The second is if you're having adult acne, especially after the age of 25, or painful cystic nodular acne at any age, especially on your chin, uh, on all the hormonally driven areas. If you're having hair growth in areas like the inner sides of your thighs or um, on your chest or on your chin, that needs to be addressed, especially if you're needing to you know, remove the hair every day, every other day, that can be really hard. Um, you know, making sure that if you're having scalp hair loss, then rather than just going straight on to medications, actually delving in a little bit deeper. Do you have low iron stores? What is your diet like? Do you have PCOS? You know, those things are important. And then there are symptoms, Rupi, that we don't talk about. So one is, of course, carrying excess weight. When somebody is in a bigger body, what happens is you tend to get dismissed by doctors. And I have a whole chapter on medical racism and medical sexism and medical weightism or sizeism, because we know that historically that has been the, the, the theme. And so what happens is once you are 
you feel dismissed, you will then end up not seeing the, uh, you know, not approaching doctors again. And so you then end up suffering in silence. So that's another sign. Infertility or having difficulty in conceiving is the most common cause of infertility is PCOS. And that is because if you remember, I was talking about releasing of eggs, the ovulation, because of anovulation, you're not releasing eggs, you're not having periods regularly. That is the most common reason for uh, infertility or difficulty in conceiving. Most women will go on to conceive with or without help with PCOS, but don't again be dismissed by your doctor just because you're young, if you have a diagnosis of PCOS or endometriosis or any uh, hormonal health condition, if it's taken you longer than six months, don't wait for the 18 months. You need to push and say, I need tests. I need investigations. You know, take that power into yourself. So infertility, excess weight, um, all the signs of androgen excess, period issues are symptoms of PCOS. But then you have symptoms like, uh, you know, the mental health symptoms, uh, obsessive compulsive disorder, never gets talked about, suicidal thoughts, uh, you know, binge eating. Can you imagine when you're already living in a larger body, you then go to the doctor and they tell you to lose weight and you're actually, you know, a high proportion of women with PCOS have binge uh, or disordered eating without anorexia, so without purging. So what happens is you tell somebody to lose weight uh, by either going on a, even on a plant-based diet, that is very triggering. So weight loss should never be, even though it's a very a great way of managing polycystic ovary syndrome, focusing on a health goal is much better. I want to run a 5K. I want to go for a walk with my friends. I want to uh, be healthy. Uh, I want to have a child. Whatever it may be, is a better health goal than uh, a weight loss goal. And then anxiety and depression are huge components of PCOS because the condition is very stigmatized. You don't have many celebrities coming out, you know, because of the fact that it involves acne, loss of hair, excess hair, excess weight. So you have few and far between celebrities talking about it and nobody wants to, um, you know, talk about conditions that have been sort of made fun of in the past, right? Male hormone, you look like a man, these sort of situations. And then there are sleep issues, disturbed sleep, snoring, sleep apnea. These are all symptoms that are not talked about, you know, thickening of the skin and darkening of the skin, which is sort of a marker that you have insulin resistance called acanthosis, nigricans. So there are so many symptoms which don't fall into the criteria for PCOS, but really are so disturbing, psychosexual dysfunction, you know, body image, people stop going out. Rohini was in that situation. She didn't want to go out. Uh, and so if you just label somebody, um, you know, with anxiety or depression without actually understanding what is the background, not taking the time, you're doing the person a real deep disservice. And, and because there is so much help available, that that is important to understand. Yeah, I... I, I... I wonder, with with your um, perspective, having worked in such a busy, busy healthcare system, and I'm sure you've got uh, plenty of colleagues and, and friends who work in general practice as I do, um, the strain on our healthcare service today is one that pushes a sort of pharmaceutical uh, first approach because it's it's quicker. And it's according to guidelines, uh, although I'd argue that lifestyle is very much part of the guidelines as it is in, the, um, in NICE at the moment. But do you think that this is a situation now where we have to really start thinking laterally about how we rely on at-home investigations, 
telecoms and telemedicine and telenutrition that I don't think is getting enough airtime, as well as companies that provide uh, direct-to-consumer testing so people can take control of their own health. I think there are, there are pros and cons of, of that for sure, but the, the way you've just described everything in terms of how we assess symptoms it is in direct contrast to how I hear other general practitioners being able to practice with the time constraints that we have today. So I, I guess my question is, what, what are your opinions on D2C, at-home investigations, and, and telenutrition? I am actually a great fan. I do believe that we don't credit our um, the public and our patients with enough knowledge. They're very clever. They know what they're doing. Mm. Uh, it's just important to empower them with the right evidence-based resources. And I think that's where we come in. Uh, I completely understand that my colleagues and GPs are very hard-pressed for time. That is why I say to everybody who's listening, prepare your questions. Make sure that you uh, have, what do you want out of an appointment? Have two or three um you know, top questions that you want answered so that you get them answered. Uh, but also to my fellow colleagues, I would say, try and hand out some resources. Don't have to even say very much. Just, you know, in the 10 minutes, say, I hear what you're saying. Perhaps this is a, a resource, a nice guideline or a, a Monash guideline or Dr. Bajekal's uh, website. It doesn't matter what it is. Give them a guideline that you know is science-based, evidence-based resource because you just don't have the time, especially when you're seeing 20, 30, 40 patients, you may not have the time. But what you do then is you set the scene for that person to start understanding about their condition, which means they will take less time next time. Maybe they won't even need to return to you. And also, there is absolutely no problem if they do decide to have tests, but I would warn against choosing clinics and sites that are not expert validated. So, for example, we know with hormone therapy, the, there's a huge, uh, it's a whole different uh, chat and a podcast would be, but, you know, we're talking about bioidentical hormones and people having urine assays and serum assays. And those are all actually, again, not validated at all. They, in fact, maybe, you know, not just cost you money, they, they might actually hurt you in the longer term. So, Definitely, there are very good sites where you can have your blood test, but make sure that you get your doctor to interpret them rather than uh, somebody who is is not qualified to do that. I, I think that's really important. Uh, but, you know, providing people with resources and coming back to this thing about medications, medications are very important. The pill is one of the first line treatments for acne and uh, for hair growth because, you know, for that young woman who can't step out of the house because of her clinical symptoms, that's a great place to start, especially if she doesn't want to get pregnant, especially if she's not having periods. But even the or every international guideline is very clear lifestyle and behavioral changes have to come either side by side with medications or before medications for polycystic ovary syndrome management. And that is a huge shift. My only beef with that, and one of the reasons I wrote the book with Rohini, is that it's all very well to tell somebody, go and have a healthy lifestyle. The patient groups on those panels said, hang on, you're telling us to do this behavioral changes and lifestyle changes, but you're not telling us what we should be eating or what we should be doing. You're telling us any diet will work. Well, yes, any diet will work if you do calorie restriction. Uh, you know, you can smoke your way into becoming uh, losing weight. But 
actually having something that is time tested is proven to be helpful the global burden of lancet uh, of disease study in the lancet 195 countries showed that 11 million deaths can be prevented by just eating some more fruit and and whole grains and so it's important to understand that you have to give people guidance as to what they should be doing how they choose to use that dietary advice the exercise advice the stress and sleep advice is down to them but you have to give them the science-based knowledge about it and so i think it is key for us to give those resources and guide people to the right places and then you have to respect the individual. They have to decide for themselves. They are in the driver's seat. I am not watching over their um, uh, shoulders to see whether they're eating a donut or whether they're eating a piece of fruit. I'm not interested in that. I want people to take responsibility for themselves. And I think doctors should learn in many ways to hand that responsibility to the patient, but in, in a way where they're guiding them rather than you know saying, take this medication off you go because that's not going to be helpful because then they will fall prey to you know people who are telling them the pill is really bad or metformin is bad or you know just have loads of supplements we don't want that situation we want it to be the best for the person so that it actually helps them live the, the best life that they can I think this really leans into the art and science of medicine, you know, the science being the use of pharmaceuticals, even nutritional medicine, you know, being aware of the studies, but then the art is the ability to empower your patient to help them achieve a new self-identity that propels them forward on a lifestyle that they have to, you know, uh, continue themselves because, you know, in the context of your week or, or let's say month, you might see your doctor once or, or twice out of the entire year. That's 10 minutes. The rest of the time, you're with yourself. And so actually, the way I've been reframing my, my, my own practice is how to get people to engineer a life that they can sustain and maintain. And consistency is something that I'm just super obsessed with at the moment and, and creating habits that, that stick. I think when we develop sets of tools for different people that leans into that that's when we can actually move the needle on um on on healthy lifestyles and uh, you know we mentioned diet and we've been darting around it now but i wanted to talk about some of my favorite uh, topics which are uh beans first of all uh and uh, and the ingredients love beans yeah love beans and um uh, and the anti-inflammatory diet that we just mentioned uh, there as well in terms of the different types of ingredients. So uh, uh, in a broad strokes picture, I know in the book you've got a lovely image of half the plate being fruits and vegetables, and then you have your starchy, and then you have your plant-based proteins, um, which I think is a really good guide for a lot of people just to uh, you know, have a, a heuristic, a, a rule of thumb when they look at their plate for breakfast, lunch, or dinner, or whatever. Um, but what are the kind of ingredients that you like to sort of talk to to people about obviously with the caveat that you know it depends on their personal preferences and, and tastes what i want people to understand is that i would like them to inch forward to eating a whole food plant-based way of eating not a vegan diet not a, um, a necessarily a, a omnivore it doesn't matter what you eat i as i said i want you to focus on foods especially for hormonal health conditions eating plenty of fruit 
plenty of vegetables, especially green leafy vegetables. The reason I say this is because it's full of uh, antioxidants and phytochemicals and polycystic ovary syndrome uh, is a condition of, of inflammation. Uh, it often, um, inflammation is a building block for many conditions, whether it is obesity, whether it is PCOS, whether it is some cancers, hypertension, heart disease, type 2 diabetes, we know inflammation is a big issue. Uh, so we want to try and reduce that inflammation. So how do we do that? I try and encourage uh, people to bring in more fruits into their diet, more green and leafy vegetables, colorful vegetables into their diet, whole grains. So I'm talking about brown rice and quinoa and barley and oats and experimenting with different uh, ancient whole grains, whatever they feel like it's all very good the more uh, the less processed they are the better but there are some foods processing is not bad you just don't want them to be ultra processed generally as far as possible you want to also have a lot of legumes and legumes are basically beans fall into the group of legumes they're all very rich in fiber they're rich in micronutrients i don't like focusing too much on macronutrients but micronutrients um, beans green peas, soya, pulses, which means dals and things. These are all fall under the group of legumes. They are my favorite group. I think they come with packed with so much nutrition, so much fiber. They help to reduce the inflammation. We know that long living societies like the blue zones uh, all over the world tend to eat beans as a staple. Uh, we want, I want people to eat uh, starchy uh, vegetables. So things like potatoes with skin. Ideally, you want to cook your potatoes and then uh, put them in the fridge and then reheat them because that increases the resistant starch. And when it increases the resistant starch, your blood sugar levels don't spike. So Potatoes are a great source of nutrition, helps to keep you full. I also want you to have sweet potatoes and yam and other tubers. I would like people to bring in mushrooms, a lot of mushrooms. I'm a great fan of mushrooms. And so I know it's not part of the lifestyle ACLM's um, group of plant-based foods, but mushrooms form a, are a firm favorite of mine, as well as herbs and spices really important to bring in herbs and spices and making water your drink of choice. So herbs and spices are particularly important. So for example, putting cinnamon on your porridge in the morning or on your cereal will help to stabilize blood sugar levels, you know, digestion with cumin and things like that. So I have those tips in, our, in my book, but it's really important that we understand the power of herbs, throwing a sprinkling of uh, uh, coriander or parsley or basil, whichever herbs you like, fresh herbs, spices they can stay forever in your uh, in the fridge if you wanted to you know so but buy smaller quantities i always tell people shop at the end of the day try to you know if you're on a budget if you're a university student go to the local uh, market go to the um, world markets you know go to the supermarket uh, when all the prices are down i remember roini used to shop in marks and spencer in huddersfield when she was doing her nutrition degree and you know at eight o'clock at night just before they were going to shut down everything was like 10p all the food and nobody had wanted the beans and things like that. So I think it's important to really focus on these foods as much as possible, keeping a leeway that if you're going out, you can have a meal out once a week. And in the, my 20, in our 20 day, 21 day plan that Rohini has formulated, there's space for all that. Because as I said, if you're going to 
think this is not a joyful way of living, which it is. It takes time. So give yourself the three to six months of eating this way rather than thinking I've got to go 100% plant-based. I've got to be like this amazing person who's cooking every meal from scratch. You know, cans are bad. No, try to buy BPA-free cans. Try to buy uh, stuff that comes not in, in paper and things like that. But it's not the end of the world if you're using a can of beans instead of having a takeaway. You know, you can just make a very quick uh, meal out of canned. Uh, and I'm a lazy cook. I love cooking, but I'm a lazy cook. I, anything that takes me longer than 15 minutes, out. <laughs> not in my book, not not in, not in my <laughs> kitchen, <laughs> you know. So I don't like all this long stirring. Uh, no, 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 not for me. So... <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this is what I want people to eat. And maybe if you ha- we have time, we should talk a little bit about soy because, again, it gets such bad press. But- yeah, yeah, go for it. It, it does get a bad press. And I'm a, I'm a fan of soy. You know, I, I have tempeh in my diet. I have tofu in the various forms it comes, like soft, medium, firm texture. It's a very versatile ingredient and particularly if you're trying to lower your animal product um, consumption as well the reason why i'm such a fan of soya soya is a bean okay it's a magic bean like jack and the bean magic beanstalk but it is a bean Uh, and so it's given so much more importance than it actually is it's just a poor little bean that has been around for about five thousand years and uh, all the um, you know whether it's China, Japan, Korea, all of them have been eating soy. So we know it's healthy. There's not been any studies. There have been thousands of studies showing the benefits of soy. There has been zero studies, zero scientifically based studies. There's been one case report, I think, uh, where somebody drank 20 liters of uh, soy milk, but for men and and, and then developed uh, some excess amounts of estrogen. The beauty about soy for all hormonal health, whether it's male or female, is that what it does, it has fiber, it has uh, protein, very good amounts of protein. In fact, uh, soy has similar amounts of protein to egg white, which is considered the holy grail for people who work out. Uh, And so you want to understand that not only does it have fiber and protein and lots of micronutrients, it also has plant estrogens, isoflavones, which are present in uh, flaxseed, which are present in, um, you know, cereal and fruits and pistachios. Soy has the same thing. And what this clever bean does is these plant estrogens block the effect of the more dangerous excess mammalian estrogen. So that coming from our body fat, that coming from, say, dairy and red meat, what it does is because it works on the beta receptors in the cell, not the alpha and the beta receptors, it goes and promotes uh, the growth of uh, bones and reduces your risk of osteoporosis. It reduces hot flushes. It helps to lose weight. It protects the heart from the those beneficial activity, but it also has a blocking effect, which is why it reduces breast cancer and prostate cancer. We know that those who consume soy earlier on in childhood, but at and in early adulthood, have a 25% reduction in aggressive prostate cancer. And it also reduces colon cancer, ovarian cancer, womb cancer, which is important for PCOS, breast cancer, liver cancer. So because it's basically an anti-angiogenetic action that it has, it basically stops uh, the new blood vessels that fuel cancer growth. And it also helps with the heart. So uh, I want people to have at least two portions. 
if you have a thyroid problem, what I would suggest is uh, making sure that you have a couple of hours between taking your thyroxine and your soy milk or, or tofu or whatever you're having because it can compete for the same receptors. But otherwise, between two to four portions, which means a glass of soy milk, a handful of edamame beans, um, a, a tempeh burger, a handful of tofu. I tend to have about three to four portions of soy every day, but depending on your level of activity, but this is because you don't want to displace other healthy foods. So you don't want to have 20 portions of anything. You know, you don't want to have be on a fruitarian diet. You want to be having fruits and vegetables and beans. You want to have a diverse diet. That gut microbiome that you were talking about, it loves diversity. You know, the American Gut Health Project suggested that we should have at least 30 different plant foods in a week. How do you do that? You have to have salads before every meal. Great way to help reduce weight. Great way for the taste buds as well. It also helps you fill you up and fill you up with the right things. You understand? So I think once you get this way of eating and not demonize soy because it's got plant estrogens, you should actually celebrate soy because it has plant estrogens, uh, you know, just like flaxseed has and pistas has and, and uh, you know, um, uh, what do you call it, cereals and various other beans. They all contain plant estrogens. We don't stop eating them. We shouldn't stop yeah. eating soy. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I, I think it's uh, it comes down to what we were discussing earlier about the lack of nuance and the sort of loose associations that one might make if they don't understand the science. It's kind of like, you know, uh, cholesterol and phytosterols. You want to have phytosterols. You wouldn't reasonably think that if you eat phytosterols, your cholesterol is going to go up uh, or your LDL, your, your um, uh, carriers of cholesterol are going to go up. So it's the same thing. And actually that's been demonstrated to be beneficial in the portfolio diet and, and a whole host of other diets as well. So, yeah, I, I'm glad. I'm glad we've 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 touched on that for sure. Um, although I'm sure there are going to be lots of other questions based around soy that we have to tackle. But you, you've gone through a, a lot on in your book. I, I I imagine you know when you talked about um, these sorts of ingredients in in uh, your patients' diets, uh, your patients have come back to you and like you know, Doctor Bajikol, I. Uh, I've tried uh, getting more beans in my diet, but I just bloat. Or I eat this way and I just bloat. You, you've got some tips on how to avoid bloating as you inch toward. I love that term, that inching toward a whole food plant-based diet. What What are some of your, your tips that you, you talk about? The other thing I want to mention, Rupi, is that, you know, just because one has been diagnosed with any condition, it does not mean you can't eat culturally appropriate foods. You know, every single diet, uh, especially a lot of our diets around the world, whether it is an Italian diet, whether it's an Indian diet, whether it's, uh, you know, Southeast Asian diet, doesn't matter. Um, there are a lot of beans and legumes in these diets, but also you can enjoy those foods. I want to enjoy my idlis and my dosas rather than and my, you know, different types of rotis and dal dosas. I want to eat that. I don't want to always be having uh, avocado on, on sour bread, uh, dough, uh, bread you know, for a treat. So I think it's important to know that all these foods can be adjusted. And that's how I, when I changed my diet, because uh, Naina, our younger daughter, decided to go completely plant-based when she was 10. I brought in so many world cuisines, which I never knew existed. 
And so for those who are struggling with beans or any legume, start with the smaller beans. That's what Rohini explains. Always start with the dals because they are smaller. They're more easily absorbed. Start with making sure that they're completely cooked. So they should be soft, mashable with the back of your spoon, whether whichever bean you're eating, because undercooked beans can give you a terrible tummy. The second thing is... Uh, so making sure that you rinse your beans from a can thoroughly, cook your beans, soak them in hot water or in water and come back in the end of the day or overnight and then cook them. They cook faster, easier, they're softer. Start with just a teaspoon. Start with a teaspoon on your salad or something and then make it a tablespoon, then make it two tablespoons, the same uh, approach that I have with my patients. You don't eat any vegetables, start with one vegetable that you like. So same way, start with a teaspoon, then two teaspoons or a tablespoon, and then suddenly you're eating three bowls of dal uh, and, you know, two bowls of lentils, and there's no problem. There are certain spices that I advise. Uh, one of them is called hing or asafoetida. It's got a, a funny little smell, but it, you don't smell it once you put it in, and you just need a little pinch. Uh, you know, I had to change all my recipes to from a pinch to a quarter of a teaspoon because I'm so used to just throwing things in. Uh, so when I teach cooking in the community class in Made in Hackney, <laughs> yeah, I have to yeah. really think about the, the amounts that I use because I, as I said, I'm a lazy and a quick cook. So <laughs> I have to really adjust to that. So using some uh, asafoetida into your, while you're cooking your beans or into the uh, tarka, as we call it, the seasoning can really help with reducing bloating uh, and again making sure that you are avoiding foods like dairy and things alongside because what happens is the gut microbiome is completely different in those who have a plant-based diet versus somebody who's having uh, quite a lot of animal products and that can give rise to because those bacteria don't know what to do with beans and so you can have a lot of bloating so introducing them slowly over a period of three to six months as you slowly replace some of the other foods you will find it much easier i haven't come across um too many people once they adopt this the problem occurs i think when somebody watches a documentary uh you know uh, and goes completely uh plant-based or vegan and they ha don't know what to do they just remove the meat from their diet and so the star of the show which was the meat is now gone and they don't know how to bring in the plant protein or how to bring in a beautiful variety of plant foods that just fills your heart with joy it's a joyful way of living there's no deprivation here i can tell you i eat everything that anybody else on this planet eats, uh, you know, in different forms. So I, I just think it's useful to remember that, that it has to be a journey. You have to do it slowly if you want to sustain it five years, 10 years, 20 years, right until mm, the end. Yeah, yeah. I, th I think those are, those are awesome tips. And I think the speed at which one transfers uh, or, or uh, uh, changes their diet has a lot to do with the bloating. I always say that, you know, You've got to go slow when you're increasing the fiber content of your food and you're adding new diverse sources and try different things as well, but in small amounts. So I think that teaspoon to tablespoon to, you know, maybe half. I mean, I have a lot of beans in my diet and I'm, I'm completely fine with bloating, but that would have been uh, very different had I had a, a, a very heavy animal based uh, diet. And actually, a lot of people, I don't think, realize just how many animal products they might consume on a day-to-day -day basis uh, my consumption is very very low but uh, most people unconsciously will consume smoked salmon in the morning 
couple of eggs, you know, chicken for uh, lunch, and then maybe like, you know, a steak at dinner. A, a, a lot of people are having this kind of diet. You know, it, it's completely reasonable and normal, quote unquote. But actually, when you when you start changing it, that's when you see you for the the, the bloating and, and stuff. So, um, yeah, th- those are really good tips. Apart from, yeah, it's like you know when you're bench pressing. Yeah, when you're bench pressing, for example, you don't suddenly bench press your whole body weight straight away, right? You've got to slowly build it up. Yeah. That's the analogy to use. That you can't, or you don't suddenly run a marathon if you haven't even uh, not able to run to the top of the road. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> you, know? you just can't. So. Um, I think that is the the people want very quick uh, fixes because they are often promised by people who don't really reveal all of themselves in social media. And what happens is you're suddenly seeing this person who's of the perfect size, the you know everything seems so perfect, and they're eating this you know huge salad, which is great, but they've been doing this over time. So how can you suddenly jump to that? When you haven't eaten any of that foods, you wouldn't do, as I said, you wouldn't run like that and you wouldn't lift weights like that. So don't do it with, with food either. And, and also, you don't have to start with food. In, there are six lifestyle pillars. So I often, my, my way of approaching when I talk to patients is I never start with food. I'll say, I, after I've asked them their gynae history and their general history in about five minutes, what... I always ask them all the general stuff and then focus in on the gynae stuff because otherwise I can get distracted and forget that they are allergic to penicillin or something like that. So I have a, a system that uh, I I actually work through. And then I said, would you mind if I ask you a few questions about your lifestyle? And I always start with sleep or and stress and exercise and their alcohol intake and their smoking and their community support uh, and then go to nutrition uh, because then people don't feel so judged. Nothing makes people feel as judged as to what you eat. You know, you're always apologizing either for being a vegan or for being plant-based or for eating a, a steak. You know, we're always apologizing for things. So I think it's better to work this way. And also by maybe focusing on if for me, of all my lifestyle pillars, sleep is absolutely. I so always say I'll sleep when I'm dead. Most of my life, I've slept four or five hours. I know it's terrible. It's probably the thing that's going to kill me very quickly. But that is where you want to focus a pillar that somebody is actually interested in. Oh, I think I do want to do 10 minutes of uh, a app where I will do some mindfulness or I'll go for a walk. I can do that. And so what happens is the domino effect. When I go for a walk with a friend, I laugh. I, I feel better. My stress levels come down. When I come home, I'm not reaching straight away for a piece of cake, I will say, you know what, I'll actually have a a tub of strawberries. And so when you do that, you feel better. You then tend to sleep better at night. When you sleep better at night, you'll wake up and have the porridge. And so it, and you'll not reach for the glass of alcohol. So I just think that working with people and actually focusing on perhaps the other life, five lifestyle pillars before you dive into nutrition sometimes can be a nicer way and not making people feel judged uh, that much at least certainly unless that's what they want to first you know you might give them a couple of tips but focusing on one of the other lifestyle pillars might be a kinder entry into helping them empower themselves because you know we are as as humans quite harsh on ourselves Mm. especially women they're very harsh on ourselves yeah yeah i um 
I'm really glad you mentioned that, actually, because I, I, I think um, we all have our biases, right? Whether it's, you know, a particular way of eating or whether it's a particular intervention that we favor, you know, a particular lifestyle pillar. Um, and you have to match that to where someone's at and what they're most motivated by. Um, so I think it's really important to remember that. And, I, and this might be a little bit of a segue, but, you know, you strike me as someone who's... Um, energetic joyful i mean this conversation has been an absolute pleasure to 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 have i mean what what are the things that spark joy in in your life because i mean i've seen you in, in a few other pods you know I've, I've met rahini it kind of kind of shines through her as well i feel like what, what what are the things that are like really giving you joy at the moment also considering the fact that you know you've been working super hard in the in the healthcare system for many years now where are you where are you getting your sort of sources of inspiration and motivation um, it's not always like this <laughs> i can tell you i have i, I <laughs> i'm an anxious person uh, i am an introvert actually uh, i do love my own company um you know but I could not have been happier that I fell into medicine. I had no idea that I wanted to be a doctor. I was, uh, I had polio as a kid and uh, I recovered from it. It was just before the vaccine. So I'm, you know, 61 years of age. So long, long time ago in India. Uh, but my father really um, pushed me uh, in the track and field event. So I was hoping that that's the road I, we were, I was going to take. But of course, in India, there was no... Uh, system to do that so my brother and sister were doctors so i became a doctor and you know discovering obgyn was the best thing that ever happened to me i just find it just as thrilling as i did 40 years ago but over time i realized there was something missing in my uh, toolbox and that was lifestyle medicine so i then retrained uh, having gone through a very difficult time at the age of 38 uh, you know, with uh, premature ovarian insufficiency, um, menopause much earlier than my sister or my mother went through. And I didn't know where to turn. I'm very honest, Rupi. It was really hard. I couldn't share with my male colleagues and I should have because they were so supportive later. And I was always this overachiever, you know, I wanted gold medal. I wanted to be the top of my thing. I never went part-time. I went back to work straight away. I had a fantastic uh, support in my uh, husband who I met in medical school in first year. So, you know, we pushed ourselves. We were immigrant doctors, poor uh, immigrant doctors, but we never thought we'd stay on in the UK. 30 years later, I'm still here. Um, but... Uh, you know, I wanted it at my terms of being a consultant, reaching the top of my game uh, and really helping people. So I think my joy comes from a few things, from my family. I just adore my family. Uh, I adore my two rescue dogs. Uh, walking them is not negotiable, whatever the weather. Uh, they get, you know, two hours from me and two hours from Rajiv always. Um, the NHS was a great source of joy for me uh, because I loved the way it delivered care, uh, free at uh, point of care. And I loved that. It's one of the main reasons I didn't go back to India. I do do private practice and actually just retired from the NHS after 31 years. Uh, and I do still do a bit of private practice. But um, I think the fact that I can I want to reach a lot of people. If I can change somebody, how they think, maybe help them, because I see that every day in my practice um, in, in medicine. You know, I see people who get their periods back, who get pregnant, who have health goals that they have achieved, have come off insulin. So, you know, for me, that is something I want to take 
on a bigger platform just because if somebody hears this makes one little change for themselves or their parents uh, or their children or the community because women are great at chatting on there and, and sharing information. Uh, I just want that information to be out there. So that's what gives me joy. Uh, in my spare time, as I said, walking the dogs, watching endless box sets uh, and uh, you know, chick flicks, I cannot watch anything that is remotely upsetting. My brain doesn't take it. Uh, <laughs> I cannot. I start feeling for everything. And, you know, it's it's not a good place to be. So worrying continuously about the planet, about animals, um, you know, I my mental health really suffers. And so I need to be outdoors. I play golf. Um, and I have a, you know, very good friend support. Uh, you know, I'm part of a book club and things. So it's, it, it's, it's tough, you know, people who think that, yes, I am very jovial. I am very uh, upbeat. I love what I do. I'm very passionate. And, you know, I have found the purpose in my life. And I think if I hadn't gone menopausal that early, I probably would never have found it. Uh, so this, you know, I do practice gratitude, however cringe that sounds. Uh, but um, I, I, I think that there is a lot to be said uh, about the different aspects and actually acknowledging, you know, I, I went through my children said, if there's one thing you can do, mom, go to therapy, uh, because I think you will benefit from it. You're always never putting yourself first, always pushing the boundaries. And I have to say, it's been an absolutely enlightening experience over the last year or so, because there are so many aspects that we, we don't want to think about and talk about. And it's, it's useful to know that, you know, not everybody is what they appear on the outside. There are a lot of things that do go on that, uh, you know, and I think had I not had the therapy, I've, I've recently had a few health issues uh, in myself and in my family, uh, which are all under control. But had I not had the tools to deal with it, I think I would have been in much um, worst place and you know Rajiv's been an amazing uh, partner and my soulmate so I've been I've been very very fortunate and I, I want to use that good luck and fortune to try and reach to reach out to people so I hope that didn't sound too long or <laughs> cringe but you know yeah no no I mean I, I I appreciate you sharing that and I think it's very easy for people like I have just done there to assume if you're joyful on the outside you're joyful in every aspect of your um life and i you know i i think i was chatting uh, about this with uh, a couple of colleagues and, and owen actually uh on, on the podcast about how i need to demonstrate slightly different sides to me because a lot of people would make the same assumptions about myself you know i'm, I'm always jovial i'm always excitable i'm always energetic but there are days Fairly often, I would say during my week where I do get low and I do have a ton of self-doubt and I do self-criticize and I feel like I'm in limbo and I'm not moving anywhere or I'm not you know, going to the next goal or I'm not being aspirational enough. And I think that plagues uh, everyone and in particular certain types of people. Um, who find themselves in professions like ours, you know, in medicine. Um, and to know that, you know... <laughs> Imposter you, you, syndrome. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And to know that, you know, you were in a um, uh, competitive field prior to medicine uh, and you're already of that sort of that mindset uh, probably gives me a little bit more insight into, into why you might be an anxious person um, as well. 
Yeah, I think what my father said to me always, Rupi, which I think my mother and father were really inspirational uh, people, but a couple of bad things my mother handed down to me. She was, you know, they didn't have much money, but so she worked really hard. She was a head teacher and she held down three other jobs. But that was the role model I saw and which I've handed down to my children, which, you know, there has to be a balance in one's life. You know, going back to work within a few days of, uh, you know, having your first child is not something I would ever advise my trainees, not sleeping at night, you know, wearing it um, as if it's something really good, I'll sleep when I'm dead, uh, is not something, you know, those are lessons that I wish I had learned all those decades ago. But the other beautiful thing that my parents would always say, especially my father would say is, he never brought me up to be competitive with anybody else. and I'm not sure whether it's a good thing to, to sort of compete with yourself, but basically try to be the best person you can. Because, you know, there's always somebody going to be, um, you know, cleverer than you, richer than you, more beautiful than you, more successful than you. What are you going to do? You know, you have this one life. You've won this lottery of being alive, being alive at a time when, uh, you know, I'm so fortunate to have health, to be a woman, not being in an oppressive regime so many benefits, uh, so many good things that are happening. If I'm going to look at the negatives, that's going to really drag me down. So that I think is really important that don't look at other people, how they are doing, look at yourself and think, how can I make myself happier? Will this make, will the next book make me happier? If yes, go for it, but do it nicely because that's what I have to keep telling myself, you know, understanding that that is really the, the critical bit is, you have that one life, it's your life. And if you don't live it the way you want to, I can't be you, Rupee, ever, right? And you can't be me. So what is the point of trying to mimic somebody else's life? Because you're not going to, it's never nothing. Not your genetics, not your epigenetics, not your environment is ever going to let you do that. You'll just be miserable about it. And also understanding that you can't change the entire world. You can do it one person at a time. Uh, or And that's what I have to talk to myself always because I can, you know, I swing through, oh my God, we're heading to doom. You know, the planet is gone. I have no, what is the point of me talking about all this? It's absolutely useless. And then I, you know, then I talk to somebody like you and I'm thinking, wow, there's so much hope in this world. <laughs> so lovely. Oh, that's so lovely you of know, you to say. I love seeing young people and young people are the future of this world, you know. I have to say, I just absolutely adore young yeah, people. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm a I'm a gratitude um, proponent. Like I, I, I share my my gratefulness everyday exercises all the time with, with friends, colleagues. I used to share it on Instagram. I should probably start again. So I, I'm a big, big fan of, of, um, of gratitude. Um, and also, um, uh, there is this concept, um, of, uh, mimetic, uh, behavior. Um, it was pioneered by Rene Girard and, and I would definitely look into that, uh, because I, I feel that, as humans, we have a natural inclination to mimic is actually how we've evolved. And I think when you understand why we compare each other or why we get firmer or why we always feel that we need to benchmark against other people, it's actually part of our evolutionary drive. And when you understand that, then you can make, um, uh, steps to, toward healing that. Uh, cause I, I'm, you know, I have to remind myself that comparison is the thief of joy pretty much every day. And I, 
and and I think you know we were joking about it uh, earlier, uh, and there is sort of a, a running joke, particularly amongst people who come from an Asian background, whether it be Sri Lankan, Indian, different parts of, of, of uh, China and, and other parts of Asia, that uh, the the parenting sort of technique is, if you've got ninety eight percent, you're missing the two percent. <laughs> And where's that 2%? <laughs> Why didn't you get that extra Absolutely. 2%? And, and I, I was so grateful to my parents for that. They yeah. never did that, but I've seen it all the time. Yeah. Uh, you know, I was a terrible parent myself in the sense that <laughs> the girls basically brought themselves up. Seriously, Rajiv and I were the world's worst parents, I think, because we were so busy with our careers the girls literally brought themselves up and thank god they did because they did yeah. a brilliant job because yeah. you know they were too clever for us and we couldn't answer half their questions so you know it, it was absolutely fine whatever marks they got because we never saw what they got but yeah it is a it's it's a recurring problem uh, it is and, and i i feel that there needs to be almost like another division or at least an appreciation within um uh, therapy that is practiced in the UK or US or if you like to call it Western therapy for people of Eastern backgrounds, um, you know, particularly immigrants. I think there's a there's a real uh, lack of appreciation for those sort of um, households and and how parents inter- engage with their kids and what is regarded as the norm. And I, I've had uh, therapy sessions where I've basically had to explain the the typical indian uh, or asian household for a couple of sessions before they actually appreciate that's where you might have trauma or you know it, ingrained beliefs that are not helping you in the present moment and and your day to day so yeah we yeah. could probably go off in a completely different direction but yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> I'm re- but you're right I, I mean i just want to say this naina i remember when she was young uh, or even recently we had a chat, uh, my younger daughter, and I said, I never put any pressure on you. Dad and I never put any pressure on you. And she said, yes, you did, just by being yourselves, just by being Indian, <laughs> just by being the doctors that you were, you put pressure on us. You do not realize. You think that's not pressure, that is pressure. And that's the same with health things as well. I think there's not enough appreciation of the stress that generations before us and generations like myself have come in, the stress that it has on our health, on our environment that we pass on to our children. Those things have not been appreciated in research, have not been appreciated in um, nutrition in so many aspects that I think I'm so glad to see people uh, of color now in in platforms where they can actually hopefully make a difference where you see somebody who looks a bit like you who is uh, has got a similar background to you which allows you to then say you know what I can also do this like you said Mm. with mimetic behavior yeah, absolutely. Yes, we can go on forever. Absolutely. So I, I think. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, Nitu, this has been wonderful. I'll have to get you in the kitchen studio whenever it's built and whenever it's ready and stuff, and you can cook absolutely up some of um, the dals and the, the idli and dokla, whatever you want to cook. I'm sure it would taste absolutely fantastic. So thank you so much. I really appreciate you. Not at all. Thank you for having me on. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of the Doctor's Kitchen Podcast. Remember, you can check out Living PCOS Free. That was co-authored with Nitu's daughter and nutritionist, Rohini Bajakal. You can check out Nitu's 
website and all of her socials, all of which are linked to in the show notes on thedoctorskitchen.com. Sign up to the Eat, Listen, Read newsletter. Remember, you can check out lots of recipes, over 500 on the Doctor's Kitchen app, plus the books and the website. There's loads to get you excited about a plant-forward lifestyle. I will see you here next time. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.